welcome back to all things turd and glitter um i hope you're having a good week so far so today's episode of glitter me turd was actually recorded some time ago um but what seems to be a bit of a common theme now is that these episodes spring up um and the content of each episode seems to go back into my ear holes just when i needed to hear them um so it was so good to be reminded of giles dooley's incredible advice and life lessons today um and whether you need to hear them or not right now i i really think you will love what he has to say personally after the week i've just had um that included some pretty intensive treatment on my brain because I have some breast cancer that's found its magical way there um, and also coming home to a broken boiler uh, during the coldest time so far this year um, well I just really needed to hear Giles reminding me to focus on things that I can control instead of the things I cannot <laughs> um, anyway I if you don't know Giles, basically if you don't know Giles, um, you're in for a treat. Uh, he is full of such incredible wisdom um, and I don't want to say any more now. I just really want you to listen to him and his incredible story. Um, as ever, please be a love and share this podcast with others if you haven't already and rate and follow if you haven't already. And I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! Today's guest is photographer and one-armed chef, Giles Dooley. Uh, Giles started his photography career taking photos of rock and pop legends like Oasis, The Charlatans, Mariah Carey, before realising he wanted to do something more meaningful and share stories of civilians caught up in conflict and war zones. I actually don't want to say anymore because... I truly don't want to take words out of your mouth and your brilliant brain. Um, I think for, for anyone listening to this, if you already know Giles, you will no doubt be feeling so lucky that you get to hear him again. And if you haven't come across Giles before, well, you are welcome. So um, Giles and I met at a event called Do Lectures in Wales in 2018. And that was just after you actually started your charity, The Legacy of War Foundation. So I'm really looking forward to hearing updates about that. But it was totally a story of stubbornness and resilience that blew me away and all the people there. So it is such a pleasure to speak to you today. I'm really, really grateful for your time. I know you are mega, mega busy. Thank you for being here. No, of course. I mean, I'm really glad. And of course, I remember. It's funny with with COVID how you lose track of how long ago things were. Everything right now is in the past or the future for me. And so... You know, I can't even remember how long ago the do lectures were, but I remember it as being, you know, great event. I loved hearing you speak there and, and getting a chance to hang out. So I'm glad we got the chance to reconnect yeah. and, and share some stories again. Likewise. To kick things off, I need you to kind of share the turd. And I, I sometimes I feel so awkward about using the term turd for some of the stories and, uh, you know, situations and life altering things that have happened to people but and I in no way am I reducing what happened to you to something so trivial as a turd but sometimes shit is the only way that you can sum things up and that's certainly how I've done um but anyway I'm I hope that you are happy to share what your turd is with us today 
Yeah, and I mean, I think it's important, you know, we all have ways of, of looking at our own experiences, trauma and, and, and challenges and finding ways to look at them in a way that's that's different from, you know, the, the very negative and trying to find positives in them. And so you know, whether, you, whether you call it a turd, you know, for me, I refer to, you know, the worst day I ever had at work, but it's just a way of looking at it. And for me, the worst ever day at work was, you know, as a, as a photographer documenting conflict, I was in Afghanistan in, in 2011 when, um, you know, I stepped on an IED, which is an improvised explosive device, essentially a landmine, something under the ground that when you step on it, it explodes. And yeah, I was very, very severely injured. I lost both my legs and my left arm and was to spend the next year in hospital, 37 operations, you know, recovering from that. And so obviously, yeah, I, I, I refer to that as my the worst day at the office, which again, the positive I get from that is I'll never have a worst day at the office. So whenever I'm having a really bad day at work or people around me are having a bad day, I'm like, okay, it's not as bad as that day. So, but, you know, I was thinking about, you know, this podcast and what I wanted to talk about. And, you know, obviously there's so many things have come from that experience. And some of them I've spoken about before, for example, the fact that, you know, as a photographer documenting the impact of conflict, there was always a challenge in that, you know, you might be in, in South Sudan photographing a young child that's been injured. You know, at the end of the day, I was the white man that's come there. I, I think I'm there for the right reasons. You know, I'm trying to create change and, and educate people and raise funds for charities, but there's still a dynamic that makes you feel very uncomfortable because I can get on a plane and leave. And I think one of the positives I got out of my injury was the fact that I had quite literally walked in the footsteps of the people that I photograph. And so now, you know, when I when I traveled, I knew that we would have a shared experience and somehow that would help me that although as a photographer, I'd be limited in my vocabulary in the sense of I couldn't move around or get all the angles other photographers could get, but my connection with the people would be very different and that would be something positive. So I was always trying to find positives, but I kind of wanted to share something maybe different on this podcast and something maybe, because I said, there's, there's so many strands in a way for experience like that of how it affects your life and how you take those things and, and, and find a positive from them or find a way to deal with it in a positive way. I think maybe it's a different way of looking at it. And actually the, the word I wanted to talk about was change. And, you know, I, I thought about this a lot and, and change is something that I think is where we grow from and dramatic change, unexpected change is often the making of us and the making of us as more resilient people, as people able to enjoy life more, all these different things. And yet change is what we try and avoid in life. It's kind of a weird paradox that if you look back on your life, the moments of change, whether they be like the first time you leave home and go to university or go to a new job, when you move cities for, for work, even difficult change like the end of a relationship or, as I say, something traumatic, those are the moments we often look back and go, well, that's made me the person I am. And yet, as we become more comfortable in life, we don't create change. We don't try and make change happen. So I think, you know, for me, I, I started to realize that, okay, this terrible experience of, of losing both my legs, my arm, um, having to come to terms with living with a disability was this terrible change. But that change is what made me who I am today. And I was trying to think of some of the, the things in that that I learned from. And I think that's how I've learned to kind of glitter that turd. And there's been many other turds since then connected with that and connected with my work is to look at it and say, well, it's a change. It's a difficult change, but it's a change. And therefore, there is some life lessons in it and something positive to come out of it. And kind of almost analyzing it in that way has been my way of, of kind of glittering it and thinking, yes, it's not what you wanted. But you look at your life, you know, all the best moments have come from those changes. So if something's going to come from this. How do we work to find what that is and to 
make full advantage of that that experience and that change. And so what I actually wanted to focus on was maybe maybe what it was that enabled me to see that positive, to 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 glitter the turd, to to find a way to turn around what had happened and say that change as being transformative in a positive way. And the thing I haven't really spoken about much, because obviously the very easy thing to talk about is, you know, losing two legs and an arm, coming to terms with living with disability, the the constant pain, the operations, all the rest of it I've had to go through, the challenges of even getting from A to B to learn to walk again. But the other thing that don't kind of come up very often, doesn't come up very often in talks, is the period when I was in hospital for the first um, sort of phase of it, which is basically I was injured in Afghanistan, as I said, and um, I was fully conscious when that happened. But by the time I got me to the main hospital in, in Kandahar, they put me into an induced coma. And when I woke up three days later, I was in what I call the ultimate lockdown. Um, you know, obviously all of us experienced lockdown. But when I woke up, I tried to move um, and sit up. I couldn't. I could see everything around me. I was in an intensive care ward. The lights are on. Nurses and doctors were running around. Lots of noise. So I was fully conscious of what was happening around me. But I couldn't sit up. And of course, then I thought, well, maybe I'm paralyzed. Maybe that's the problem. I tried to move my, my right hand, but it was in a plaster cast, so I couldn't move it. Obviously, my other legs, well, my other arm and my other legs were missing, so I couldn't move any of those. I realized even my head was strapped to the bed, so I couldn't move anything. Then I tried to scream, and I realized I had a tube in my throat, in my nose, in my mouth. Um, and very quickly, it kind of I went through everything and realized the only thing that I could control as a bodily function, I couldn't even pee myself, um, I couldn't do a turd myself. You know, everything was controlled by machines. The only thing I could do was blink. And I realized the only way I could communicate with the world and the only connection between my imagination and my mind and the outside world was blinking. And in fact, I think it was about 24 hours from when I regained consciousness before anyone realized I had because people were rushing around doing things and nobody even realized I was kind of blinking furiously trying to say, help, I was screaming. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know I was dying. I didn't know how long I'd been unconscious. And pretty much that was how it was for the next 46 days. And so for about 46 days, I could only communicate uh, by blinking. And, you know, I'm in a room where the lights never go off. There's no clocks. There's no windows. I had no idea of time of anything. My family was allowed in occasionally. And in fact, on two occasions, they were called in to say their goodbyes. And to have your sister kind of crying, basically saying goodbye, and all you can do is blink back at her. Um, it was really the most challenging experience I could possibly relate. Um, and that really was the transformative moment or the transformative thing for me, because at the beginning of that, I would describe it like being thrown in a freezing cold ocean. Your breath is taken away. You're in a panic. You're screaming. You're, you're fighting for breath and you can't do anything. And it was like I was drowning. And I wanted everyone to know around me that I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I'm scared. Help me. And nobody even knew I was communicating. It was like being a ghost in a room, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't know how many hours or days it was, but I realized at a certain point, I have to take control of the situation because otherwise I'm going to lose my mind. You know, I'm, I'm sort of screaming in this room. Nobody's hearing me. Um, I'm going to have to create a world in my own imagination. So that's what I did. I started to both, I had memories. I would think about things in the future. I would kind of create a little universe in my mind and say, I'm going to be safe in here. And one of the things I did, for example, was it was a project called 100 Portraits Before I Die. And I imagined 
all the portraits I wished I'd done before my injury. And I, I would imagine meeting the person. I would imagine, you know, what, how we introduced each other, what camera I used, whether we're in a studio on location, um, whether I lit it, whether it was natural light, whether I used film or digital. And I would even see the photograph at the end of that photo shoot and critique it and kind of imagine how I could do it differently the next time. And on the next shoot, I would imagine the next person and I would imagine, you know, again, that, that whole process. I mean, I should point out, I was on very, very heavy doses of morphine. So this list of 100 people includes people like Kermit the Frog. I mean, it was a very, like, eclectic list of, of, <laughs> of mad, mad ideas of people I wanted to do portraits of. But the interesting thing is that I look at how I worked as a photographer before my injury and after, and it completely changed the techniques and the way I work. And so even in that 46 days lockdown in my own mind, I was able to change myself as a photographer and improve myself. Um, and that really shows what we can do in, in our mind. And so the way I see that I glittered that turd was really a life lesson or something that came out of that. And that was taking control of the situation and, and not focusing on the things that I couldn't control and finding what I could and say, I'm going to excel at those things and I'm going to be brilliant at those things and, and not to worry about the things outside of my control. And that liberated me, not just through my injuries and not just through my recovery, but in every aspect of my life since. But that is how, ever since that moment, I've, I've glittered every turn, every bad experience. And I think if I was to ask 80, 90% of the people around me, what is bothering you the most? What is the thing that keeps you awake at night? What is the thing that's really challenging you as an individual, as a, as a couple, as a business, as a community? Probably 80, 90% of people will tell me things they have no control over. And my kind of thing is, well, yeah, that's important, but right now it's blocking your vision. You need to put it to the periphery. You need to put it to the side. Of course, it uh, affects our decision-making, but it can't be the thing we think about all the time because then you've blocked your opportunities of moving forward and, and doing things you can do. And then I think that's what's so brilliant and fascinating about the conversations that I've had on this podcast is for us to kind of turn what the turd is on its head a bit and kind of go, well, what if that was actually the best thing that's ever happened to me? What if I needed that? And I'd say, no one needs cancer. No one needs to stand on a fucking landmine. But we all go through bad stuff and, and tricky situations in our life that can change things monumentally and sometimes for the good. Mm -hmm. When I wanted you to come on this podcast, I was like, I just really hope Giles just talks for an hour. So because he's so brilliant and he has so much cool shit to say. No, sorry. I felt like I was just rambling on. But I think, yeah. No, no, I I love it. And I could listen to you all day long. Um, I, I kind of want to go back to your point about change. And, and what I noticed in your story is, you know, you had to make a change from photographing, you know, musicians to doing something that you felt was more helpful to others. And um, I'd say that was a bit, pretty big change. And it was your mental health that kind of led you to that. You know, it's your feeling that you actually potentially didn't even want to live anymore that made you make that change. And the fact that that had to come with, from within. So what, what resilience did you already hold in order for you to move to that point where you knew that that is what you had to do next? You know, it, it's interesting when I look at, back at my life, it's, it's been marked by these, these changes. So at, at um, so 18, 19, I'd gone to America on a sports scholarship and I had a car accident, which meant that sport suddenly was changed. I couldn't do that. And that's when I started photography. I got into fashion photography. It was great. But I, I kind of found something was missing all the time. 
you know, it's hard to say, I think, with mental health, what triggers and what is what is caused by it. It's a sort of always a balancing and looking back. Mm-hmm. But I think a combination of, of you know, living a life that was was very superficially successful, but then feeling empty kind of challenged me because then I was like, well, what is going to make me happy if, if I'm earning good money? I'm traveling around the world. I'm hanging out. You know, I'm living a dream life. Everyone's jealous of my life. And yet I sit in a hotel room after a photo shoot in tears because I feel completely empty. How the hell am I going to find something that's going to make me happy? You know, what is it that I need? And so you think it's going to be more money, more alcohol, more drugs, more parties. And you realize those are the things that are not the answer, but you don't know what is. And so then I sort of sunk into a spiral of, of really at a loss because you kind of sit there, you know, 28 going, well, what is going to make me happy? Like, what is going to make me happy? If I thought all these things were the things that are going to make me happy, the success, the money, et cetera, they're not, I don't have an alternative. And so I'm screwed, you know? So that was the kind of point I reached there where I sunk into a very deep depression, gave up sort of photography, moved out of the country. So I got a job in a bar and was just drinking myself really into a stupor. But again, then, then that lowest point, I think then it was a case of I had to change or life kind of, you know, had no purpose. I couldn't see myself going on. And I actually remember at that point thinking at 29, 30, I've screwed up my whole life. I've completely messed it up. I've, I've kind of, you know, I'd been married, that had broken up. My career had gone to shit. I lost all my money, everything. And my mantra then was I just want a fresh start. I just want to start all over again. And I realized nobody could give me that gift that I was going to have to do it. But I, it was it was the thing in my mind. I just I remember saying to myself, if somebody said to you, okay, you can spend three years, you have to give me three years of your life now where you have no life, no friends, you can't go out, you can't do anything. But in return for that, you get a fresh start of life. Would you do it? And that kind of was the thing going through my head. And that's quite literally what I did. I, I moved into doing full-time care work. So I was living with someone. I never took a day off. I worked for about three, four years. I didn't see friends. I didn't even take Christmas off. Um, and I would use that money to fund trying to do documentary photography and I'd go away on trips. But I basically had no life for three, four years. And that was my way of saying I was going to have to put so much effort into rebuilding my life and trying to sort out all, all my problems that that's kind of I was going to have to go into that, that phase, which was really difficult, really challenging. But that was, again, a forced change, but it was a reset change. It was kind of saying, I just want a fresh start. And it's hard to explain, but what that meant for me was, and I know it sounds very dramatic and, and you know, the changes in my life always tend to be quite sort of, you know, to an extreme. But I think what it was is that I felt I needed to prove not just to myself, but to my friends and people close to me that I was really committed to changing everything. And the mistakes I sort of made in the past whether that was that was um, brought on by my mental health didn't really matter to me at that stage. The point is, I felt I fucked up, you know, the first ten years of my adult life, and through that I had let a lot of people down, and I needed to prove to everybody that I was so dedicated to 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 having a clean slate that I would do anything, give up anything to do that. And so that that was the process I sort of went through in my mid thirties. Um, and so that was yeah, that was a forced change, I guess you know. And then, and then, obviously, getting injured was another dramatic change. I mean, it's actually it's kind of funny. The, the The car accident was when I was eighteen, I or nineteen. I gave up fashion photography, music photography when I was twenty nine. At thirty nine, I got blown up, and I was forty nine last year. And I must admit, I was terrified. I was like, "What the hell's going to happen <laughs> this year?" It's like a sort of ten year cycle. Um, and thankfully, touch wood, I got through it. But I also think when people ask me how did you cope with your injuries, and I actually say, "Well, the mental health." 
breakdown and dealing with that was a far harder battle, was far more challenging and far less support because people don't know how to support it and people you know, see your behavior as being challenging and difficult and people stay away. A physical injury was much easier because people, you know, it's very easy to say, well, help you and sorry, you know, what can we do? And, you know, it, it, it's a much easier and obvious battle to deal with. And so I think the reason I got through my injury was because of 10 years of, of dealing with a with a mental health battle that had got me to that point and had given me again, maybe that, that word resilience again, that meant that when I got injured, I there was almost to say a sense of like, oh God, here we go again. All right, bring it on, you know, let's go through it. Um, but I find it really interesting that you have said before that it was in hospital and you had this realization that you could you could, even though you're probably thinking, for fuck's sakes, here we go again, but also that you could finally give yourself a break now, that you didn't have to prove anything to anyone ever again. Yeah, no, that was definitely true. There was there was two things. One was um, I think I'd always sort of self-sabotaged and always seen myself as a failure and always seen myself as, as you know, never good enough. So even when I was doing, you know, fashion photography, the fact that my work might appear in French Vogue or in GQ magazine that in my early 20s, which was, you know, an achievement, I would see, well, I'm not as great as the greatest photographers in the world, therefore I'm a failure. And sort of, you know, mentally beat myself up about that. And everything was always like that. And so I think there was always a sense of trying to prove myself. And obviously then when I got injured, it was a case of, well, you know, give yourself a break. Like, as you say, I was like, well, you don't need to prove anything to yourself now. Life is going to be really hard. Now you've got to be a bit kinder to yourself if we're going to get through this. And then the second thing was, you yeah. know, through depression, anyone that's gone through depression will know that, you know, it, it creates this, I call it like a hall of mirrors, where, you know, you're going through one of those kind of, at a fairground, the mirrors that distort everything you look at. And you kind of know it's a mirror distorting you, but you still can't help but to see that reflection. And, you know, for me, the sense of not being loved or nobody loving me was that kind of mirror reflecting that back at me. And part of me would know that's not true, but part of me saw that reflection in the mirror and couldn't deny it. So I'd always suffer from that. One of the few people that I'd ever really spoken to about it was my brother. My brother was by my bed the whole time through that 46 days when I couldn't communicate. And I remember one of the things he whispered to me during that period because he was reading out all these letters and notes and emails that people had sent me. And I remember him at one point saying, you know, look, you can see all these people, how it's affected their lives. He said, the one good thing that's going to come out of this is you can never say I'm not loved again. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, bro. A funny story I should say about that, though, is that he used to brush my hair all the time. And I hate my hair being brushed. I don't know why. I just always, as a kid, I just never really liked it. My mum used to do it. I hated it. And my poor brother, because obviously I couldn't communicate. He didn't really know what to do. You know, I'm tied into all these machines. You know, and he used to just, and he used to just stroke my hair just as a kind of, you know, he needed to feel like he was doing something because he couldn't obviously hold my hand. He couldn't do anything else. And after 46 <laughs> days, they took all the tubes out. And finally, after 46 days, I could speak again. And the first words I said were, if you touch my fucking hair one more time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's brotherly love, but yeah. how to get it right and so wrong at the same time. I think, oh, yeah, those 46 days. And I can totally relate to that experience of you, you're coming through the hard bit and the hard bit is where you kind of, you realize you're not dead. And or you're not dying immediately, but then you also have to work out what being alive means all of a sudden, and it puts this almighty sort of pressure on life. Um, 
but obviously you had so you'd you'd focused on these 100 portraits did you do that because obviously not a lot it was only 18 months after your after stepping on the landmine that you went back to Afghanistan to kind of finish your assignment is that right yeah I mean the, the 100 portraits I, I did a couple of them um, but unfortunately just it meant that you know I was as I say going back to Afghanistan and work kind of took over from from that um but actually, I was just listening to what you were saying. It's it's interesting as well. Sometimes life throws these things at us that, again, that you know, you almost have to sort of sit back and laugh. And I think again, that's part of how you you glitter these things is you have to kind of sometimes just go, Are "You kidding me?" And I sometimes think that there were certain things in my journey that you know, it's almost like somebody was over you know overhearing me. Where, for example, one of the things when I was uh, years of depression was the sense of isolation, and you know, even when you're around people and and you know, you you kind of sharing something, feeling very alone. And so then to be basically put into a situation for 46 days where actually you really are alone, where, where you're surrounded by people and you can't even communicate with them, was a bit like, okay, that's what it means to feel really isolated. That was, you know, and I feel there's been quite a few things in my life like that where I've kind of said, oh, this is really bad. or I don't, And then you're like, you don't know what's really going to challenge you? This one. And I think, again, those, those sort of lessons that we, we learn from it. And I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience, though, with the, that there are times – you know, in in the process of of recovery or coming to terms with with you know new living situations, where you do feel isolated because you feel like you're the only one going through that journey. That you know everyone can be around you and being sympathetic, but you know I'm going through this something that I can't really get anyone to understand or, or wouldn't expect them to understand, and so it can be quite you know isolating. But again, I think that's where resilience and shared stories really come in, and you know we can become very self-isolating through difficult experience and one of the things you know i encourage everyone to do is actually to open and to share and mm-hmm. i think that's a really important lesson again to learn is that i have a lot of friends that will say to me you know i've got going through this bad thing but i don't want to tell you about it because you know you've gone through so much worse and you also you meet people who are going through terrible things and and my thing seems so trivial so i'm keeping quiet and i, I always get really upset by that because you know i said no it's, it doesn't work like that because all of us have had our worst and best experiences. All of us are living within parameters of what we've gone through. And we can't compare our stories to everybody else because we all do that. I know I do it. Again, you know, I, I obviously have pain and difficulties, but then I go to, you know, a, a refugee camp in Lebanon full of Syrians who have lost limbs. I'm like, I can't complain because of what they're going through. And again, I think that's something we have to, as as a society and as a group, move away from and listen to everyone's stories and um, you know, get away from that sense of isolation when we've gone through trauma. And so things like this podcast is great because it gives us a chance to share stories. But I think it's also important that people listening to it don't kind of put anybody's story in a different level and say, oh, my God, how can I complain about my bad day at the office when Giles just said his worst day at the office is getting blown up? Oh, I hear you so much. Um, I don't know. I think the word cancer has comes with this almighty weight and um, power in a way that I sometimes want to just diminish and make tiny if I can because in a way I don't want to ever be put on a pedestal just because I have you know a disease that we all are so terrified of it's like what the biggest fear that people have is getting cancer because they think that's the ultimate awful thing that could happen and i and when when i tell people i have it it's almost like you can see them just like die inside um because they don't know how to deal with that and and i'm the same i'm in the same i've been in the same boat where people will minimize their experience whatever it is good or bad because they don't want to share it with me because they're too scared that 
I would be upset by that. But it life is just not about that. It's not a hierarchy of turds. It's just we all have to try and get through it. And and also, I think it's really important that we have the conversation. And that's kind of going back to something I said early on about, you know, it's like, I, I don't beat myself up. If I'm having a day when I just can't deal with it all, I go, you know what, Giles, today is a day you're just going to sit on the sofa, um, you know, going to eat ice cream and just feel sorry for yourself. It's fine. Tomorrow, we'll try and see if we can deal with it. But let's not beat yourself up. And I, I hear that a lot of people saying again, you know, oh, I, I feel really bad because I, I was struggling and I'm going to keep that quiet. No, we need to talk about that as well. We need to talk about the fact that the, these things are a journey. You know, for me, it was a journey over several years to, to even come to terms with it. Uh, and there are huge periods in that where I just was like, I give up. I don't want to live like this. Yeah, that's, again, I think it's just important that whenever we're talking about, you know, glittering the turd, we should also remind ourselves of the days when it, it kind of fills up the toilet. <laughs> Thanks. I think it's just, it's so refreshing to hear it, to remind ourselves of that and, so, I, I mean, moving on, I really want to talk about some of the glittery bits because um, there have been some. And, and one of them for you is, of course, starting the charity Legacy of War Foundation. And I want you to kind of share where you're at with that and um, and why you saw a need for that. Setting up a charity was something I never intended to do. I mean, I'm a loner. I've never had a job in my life. I've always worked for myself, always been very independent, and I've loved that. And so I think the idea of anything kind of more formal and, and having an organization and doing things was, was terrifying for me. But at the same time, I think maybe, again, it, it ties into everything we've been talking about today, that I didn't feel that a lot of charities were tapping into this thing with people, which is their resilience. And I think I was seeing so many organizations. And I don't want to, be, I don't want to speak bad of these organizations because I've worked with them a lot, and, of course, they do amazing work. But there was often this tone of, victims and people that we're helping and looking after and make empowering and doing these things for them as opposed to looking at it as somebody like I saw my own story of like I had a really big shit experience but I had friends that helped me rebuild and and I helped rebuild myself and all these things happened but it was all positive I didn't want people ever to look at me as a victim and I felt that a lot of the way the charities work would be to look at communities and just see them as, as people that needed our help I try to find a way to work with, with communities and say, look, what is it that we can do to help you? you know, what is it that you need right now? And you know, one of the words that gets used a lot by charities is empowerment. And you know, I hear it again and again and again where charities say, we are empowering women in, in DR Congo. We are empowering families in Ukraine. We are. I actually have a, a friend and she, she's an amazing writer and she broke it down to me once and, and she just said, look, you can't empower someone else. Your job is to take down the barriers that stop somebody empowering themselves. And again, it's, it's it's like you have spoken about. It's not about people feeling sorry for you. It's not about people seeing you as a victim. It's about saying, you're going through a really shit time. What can I do to help you? You know, what is it that you want to do? Is it you want to go out dancing all night? That's fine. Is it you, you need some, you know, maybe it is financial support. Maybe it is you need some support to go to a hospital one day. It's all different things. But it can't be this kind of you know, white paternalism of like, we know what's best for you and we're going to look after you and you sit down and we'll do everything. No, it has to be about putting um, the conversation and the hands of the power in the beneficiaries and them saying, this is what we need. This is how you can help us. This is kind of the list of requirements we have. Can you do that? And so that's really why I want to set this charity as an example of how you can do things differently. I want to be just a friend. You know, I don't want to be a charity. I want to be your best buddy. I want to be your partner. I want to be the person that says, hey, come on, what can we do to help you? You're going through a difficult time. I've been through a difficult time. 
you know, what is it that you need from me right now? Yeah, giving people or making people understand that they have the power already rather than trying to take it away from them and making themselves feel better about themselves. I mean, if only all charities and NGOs and, um, I know, systems in our society worked in that way, what, you know, what change we would see much quicker. It's quite unreal, really. Um, I certainly how I hope we do things within Copperfield and our charity and making people understand that they already hold the power um, to do mm-hmm. so much themselves. I just so much I want to speak to you about Giles, but I, I want to move on to food. So let's move on to food. My first question is, if you were here in my house right now, we're doing this remotely, obviously over Zoom, what would you make me right now? <laughs> what would I make you right now? Well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I love cooking. I mean, cooking is a huge part of my, my life, but actually I always like to find out people's or food that's connected with people's own memories you know i think food is the greatest storyteller and what's amazing about food is that when you eat it it can take you back to a time and a place and actually i was with some ukrainian friends last night and a ukrainian chef was there and he was making various dishes and these ukrainians were actually they were almost in tears because it was taking them back to their childhood not just back to ukraine but actually to moments in their childhood that incredible power food has to help people go back to moments in their life. So I always love it when people have told me stories about maybe something their mother cooked them or something that they had, you know, with with somebody that they love, maybe they're not with anymore or, or of a home that they can no longer return to. And I love knowing what those dishes are and then, and then trying to recreate that for them. You know, I think also food, food is such an expression of love. I mean, I spent my life documenting war. And then one day I realized that food was the antithesis. So where war is about hatred, it's about destruction it's about breaking communities apart food is about love it's about bringing people together it's about starting conversations it's everything war is not so food for me is always about either sharing a story sharing a place or a story that i've just um been being shared with me or most importantly is actually somebody telling me something that means something to them and me trying to cook that for them i totally know what you mean about like breaking almost breaking the ice with people is it's like, well, breaking bread, almost going back to that sort of, yeah, let's talk, let's eat, let's connect over food. I always say that I take a better photograph if I've eaten with someone first. So I always now try and mm. have a meal with someone or cook a meal with someone before I photograph them, and which can be kind of odd at times. In fact, the first time it really struck me how important that was, because it's also a sign of respect. You know, it's a sign that says, you know, we are, we are building a relationship. We're not just, I'm not just here as a journalist. I'm actually wanting to build a friendship. because. You know, we do that in normal life. If I meet somebody that I like, I might ask them out for dinner. When I see my family, we sit and eat together. When we commiserate or celebrate, we do it over food. And so I remember the first time was in Mosul, and this was during the fighting between Iraq, the ISIS, and there was this you know, terrible fighting happening in Mosul. And I was taken to visit um, a grandmother who had a, a story that was really difficult to hear, where the father of the family had been on the roof of this house and he'd been killed by a drone, a missile. And the house had been caught in the middle of the fighting between ISIS and the Iraqi government. The grandfather had been killed in the garden. And then the mother was actually killed by a sniper while she was cooking in the kitchen. You know, sort of incredibly sort of idea of the trauma right in the heart of that home. And when I met them, the grandmother came to the door and she was screaming at me, screaming this kind of trauma. And I didn't want her to do that. I didn't want her to feel like she had to just tell me everything because I'm this journalist. And, and I just said to her, you know, please, i just come to visit. She carried on. And again, I had to sort of sit her down and say, Look, please sit down. I said, I want you to explain that you know, my, my nonna, my Italian grandmother, she taught me to cook. 
but she's no longer with us. I said, I need a new grandmother. I need somebody else to teach me how to cook. And you could kind of see her doing this double take. She's trying to work out why this is one-armed bloke come halfway around the world in the middle of a battle to cook with her. And you could see her just, but it calmed her down and she was able to just sit there for a while. And, and she kind of smiled and in kind of confusion, I think, more than anything else, and said, okay, come back tomorrow. Um, I went back the next day. It turned out she was a terrible cook. I mean, she was really bad. Um, and all I had to, to cook was this frozen chicken and we were trying to smash it into a pot and there was like chicken shrapnel flying around the room. But we eventually cooked a meal and the grandkids joined and we sat and we laughed and we, we chatted. You know, that was just the moment I realized that that's how I wanted to approach every time I, I, I made a story with someone was to start with a meal because it's a sign of of saying, actually, I want to build a friendship and I, I want to do something. And for me, you know, it's when we go from being an acquaintance to a friend is when we sit and we have shared a meal. Uh, I think that's the extraordinary well, I think it's extraordinary ability that you have is to go to the heart of something, to the love of something, and that's how you connect with people. <laughs> Time's moving on very swiftly, so I just, uh, I kind of need you to, if you are able to, share your sort of one learning of glittering your turd. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to that really central point, and that is the idea of I realised I had to control what I could control and focus on those things and, and not worry about the things I couldn't control. And that was on a very basic level at the beginning where even even actually the moment when I got injured and I was lying there in a field in Afghanistan, I thought I was going to die. I just thought I can't control any of what's happening. I can't control these these soldiers running around me, putting tourniquets on the helicopter coming to pick me up. All I could think about was my breathing. And I remember just kind of going, think, think about that. Then when I'm in the hospital and I'm lying there and, and I'm only able to communicate by blinking, again, I couldn't control if I was going to live or die, I couldn't control the amount of operations. I couldn't control what the, what the surgeons would do to me, you know, what state my body would be in, how long I'd be in hospital. And all those things were, were traumatizing and, and overwhelming. I was like, but actually let them go and think about again, you know, okay, maybe you can't control how long you're in hospital, but you can control the man that you will be at the end of it. And so work on that, work on, on different things. And that lesson has continued. And now I say in everyday life, something like Ukraine, Ukraine is very easy for me to be overwhelmed by it. You know, I have many friends that have been working there for five, six years, documenting stories. And, you know, it's very easy to think, what the hell am I doing? I can't change anything there. I can't stop the war. I can't save people. And I could be overwhelmed by that and then become completely useless. And so, again, what I do is I can't stop the war. I wish I could. I can't stop the wars in Syria and Yemen, DR Congo, Afghanistan. But I can focus on the small things I can do, whether that's providing wheelchairs, providing an ambulance, providing some um, psychological support. And so focus on that and focus every day on getting up saying, what can I do? Not kind of getting up and saying, what can I do? I'm feeling helpless. It's actually you get up and you say, what can I do? And actually looking and saying, actually, there's a few things I can do. And in every aspect of life, if you approach it that way and say, God, you know, I wish COVID wasn't happening. I wish I could stop COVID. I wish I could stop Brexit. I wish I could stop the war in Ukraine. Yes, of course, you should feel that. Of course, those things are around you, but don't ignore them, don't push them away, but just keep them to the side and just say to yourself, okay, but what is it that I can do today? Can I write a letter to my politician? Can I go and help at the local refugee community? Can I bake a cake for my neighbor? Whatever it is, but find something you can do that day. And by doing that, you feel and you regain that sense of control. And I think that's one of the things that people feel overwhelmed by generally in the world at the moment is a sense that they have no control over these huge things climate change, everything that's affecting us. But you do have control over your life in each day. And that's the thing you have to focus on. Yes. Thank you. 
Oh, yes, we don't have to feel as helpless as we do sometimes. Can I just ask ask you um, a, a question? When you were being airlifted um, to the hospital and you asked the soldiers who were rescuing you and helping you, um, you said to them, am I going to die? And they were like, very, very quickly, they said, no, you're not going to die. They, they see, you are not going to die. Like, what is your relationship with death now? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've stayed in contact Um you know, I, I went to Chicago and saw them and we got very drunk together, um, which is another whole long story. Mm. Um, but they, they've gone through their own traumas. You know, one of them really suffered psychological um, PTSD really, really badly. And he used to actually call me sometimes on the anniversary of when they rescued me saying he was on the floor of his kitchen with a, a bottle of whiskey and a gun and didn't know if he wanted to carry on. Um, it, it, it's interesting how I actually had that relationship with a lot of um, ex and serving Soldiers, where I'm an anti-war campaigner, very strongly against war, and yet that relationship is is still very strong with people who have gone through that experience. And I think um, maybe, maybe I think anyone that's seen war is against war. Um, but yeah, we, we mm-hmm. we've stayed friends, and we we will always always be in each other's lives because there was a relationship. I think what was interesting for me is obviously my relationship with them was the people that saved my life, and that was very obvious. I hadn't realized how important my relationship was for them the other way around, that they saw my... In fact, you know what it is? They saw, because they, they dealt with so many casualties, they saw so many lives destroyed and her, her, terrible, terrible things that they saw. And I think what they saw in me is somebody that had littered the turd, who had actually gone through it. And it made sense for them now, because I think at the time they actually wondered, people like me, should I save their life? You know, have I actually made, you know, saved somebody that that if they had died, might have been better. Do I want somebody to go through this? Have I done the right thing? And they've always said that, that mm-hmm. by, and some of the other soldiers that were there on that day, they said, by seeing me celebrate life and enjoy life and, and go on, thankfully, and achieve lots of things, it kind of made everything they did worthwhile. And so, yeah, it's it's actually a, a good roundup in the sense of, I think what it is that, that's built our relationship is the sense that, yeah, they've, they've seen how I've managed to clear to the turd and that's given them the belief that what they did was mm-hmm. worthwhile so meaningful um please share with me the one tangible or intangible thing that you believe helps you or helped you to glitter that turd but any future turds too well i mean on a, on a very tangible level is is like we talked about is food i think that ability to to cook it works on so many levels it's also for me i i realized i needed something that was a kind of manual process because when you start thinking about stuff too much it's very hard, you know, I can sit and watch a film or read a book, but my mind is still going at 100 miles an hour. And I actually found that I needed something that was a tangible thing, like making bread, making pasta that I got lost in, and that hours would go by and I hadn't really thought about anything apart from the action of what I was doing. And so I think it's so important to have something that fills that space, that it's not really, um, I say a lot of leisure activities, they actually don't allow your brain to stop. But if you can find something, you know, some people find it in running and yoga, I found it in cooking, but something that you get lost in that, that takes up that part of the brain that the other part of the brain gets to have a bit of a break. So, so food is that for me? Giles, are you scared of anything? Am I scared of anything? Oh, I'm terrified. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't, I'm not a very brave person. I'm very stubborn, but like when I go anywhere, I get very nervous. I, I did before I got injured. Many people said to me, aren't you scared to go back to Afghanistan after I got injured? I said, no, I was terrified. I was shitting myself the first time I went. I mean, I'm not, you know, I won't go on a roller coaster. I won't do anything like that. So, um, 
yeah, I'm scared of those things. Um, on a bigger psychological level, I, I remember in my depression always being scared that I would not be loved and you'd, I'd be on my own. But as I say, that the experiences of being injured and everything made me realize that that would never happen, that it would only ever happen if I pushed everyone away. And that actually, that, that you know, people always love you and people always be there for you. It's only when you create the scenario, actually, that that won't happen. So that was my greatest fear. I think I've overcome that one now. Mm. Oh, and a souffle not rising. I'm always terrified of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is pretty scary, to be honest. I sit there watching MasterChef and I get more trauma, I think, from that than most of my work because I'll be there going, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing a chocolate fondant in the final. You're crazy. Or Why would you do a souffle? I sit there like in a panic. Are you one of those people that would watch it in the oven or would you step away from it and then come back at some point? Uh, I have to have the faith, you know. Trust the process. <laughs> um, so in, in the spirit of sharing other turds and listening to all of life's experiences and people's experiences, we're going to hear from Lucy and how they glittered their turd. Hi, Chris. My name's Lucy. I am from Cumbria, so very far north. So my big, fat, not-so-sparkly turd was the clusterfuck 2018-2019. Stupidly bought a house with my ex, found out my dad had motor neurons disease, found out my mum had breast cancer, and moved through into 2019, lose my dad, mum becomes much better and fights through cancer. And then uh, losing my long-term partner, so then having to take over a property um, that we bought together less than six months ago. The biggest thing I have learned was that you are stronger than you will ever know. I've amazed some people with how strong I can be. It has brought me and my brother and my mum much, much closer. And the big fat glittering thing here now is that I can be by myself. I can be independent. Might not be the most traumatic thing, but I certainly was a pretty interesting two years. Sometimes even the shittiest things need wrapped up like a present. Isn't it interesting, like we were saying, Lucy minimises it at the end and goes, it might not be as traumatic as other people's experiences, but I wanted to share it anyway. And I think that's, I mean, is that just a really British thing or is that just something which every human does? But like she's been rewarded with oodles of resilience, surely. Yeah, no, and it's not just a British thing because I hear it everywhere I go that people will start telling me something and sometimes incredibly traumatic stories and then they'll be like, but it's not as bad as I know other people's. And we have to stop doing that. I think on that note, I want to thank Lucy for sharing that and thank you for sharing everything that you've shared with me today, Giles. Um, do you have a drink nearby, perchance? Um, I don't, actually. All right, then, your imaginary drink. What What is your imaginary drink? Right now, it would be an espresso, but a little bit later, it might be a whiskey. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Well, I hope at some point we get to share this uh, moment together in real life and we can cheers to something, but right now let's cheers to life um and all its turds yeah absolutely cheers well as i said during the chat i was genuinely excited to speak to giles because he just has so much important and valuable stuff to say um i loved what he said about change and I, I'm really not someone who loves change at all, um, but it's so often out of our control and so often it's those changes that make us who we are today. 
all of us have had our best and worst experiences and isn't that just sort of kind of reassuring um it's also very reassuring to know that we don't need to beat ourselves up and it's okay to sit on the sofa and eat ice cream and it's currently all i really want to do oh and also everything he said about food uh also so true um there's just nothing more connecting than sharing a meal with someone is there so um please check out giles's one-armed chef work and also find out more about his charity the legacy of war foundation and uh yeah learn more if you're up for that he's just doing so much incredible and important and interesting work um i feel so honored and lucky to know giles i i really do so thank you giles for sharing your truths and your wisdom thanks lucy for sharing your story with us and also thanks to you lovely lovely you for listening and i'll hopefully see you again soon goodbye